Hello and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we tell you about strange things that happened in history. But not last week because we were both really ill. Yes, we were. <laughs> I am your host this week, Barnaby King, and the voice you just heard was Amelia Edwards. Ooh. How are you doing? Are you feeling better? <laughs> no, I had a year eight parents evening last night and now I'm really tired. Yes, that but is I've true. I've got Red Bull sugar free in hand and we'll make it through. Yeah, sponsors of this week's episode. We no. have no sponsors. <laughs> We've already made this joke. Good yes, night. I know. Uh, no, wake up. Okay. Wake up. But I mean, in terms of illness, I think we're both doing a lot better. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately missed last week, but it's okay because this week I've got a banger of an episode. <laughs> now, you've kept saying this to me <laughs> and not explaining why. So I'm nervous. Okay, well then, then let me take you back to Friday, April 15th, 1955 in Portland, Oregon. Ooh, okay. So I don't know what Portland would have been like in the 50s. Kind of cool? Um, I, I, to, to be honest, I didn't get much of an impression of it from this story. All right, fair. Uh, because at this point, we are looking at a department store. Okay, And they cool. kind of stay the same, you know? I, I guess that could be a department store anywhere in the US in the 50s, yeah. Pretty much. There's a big place called Maya and Frank. Nice. And it was rocked by an explosion. Ooh. A bomber had targeted the department store, made a demand for $50,000. Eventually, the police managed to track down this bomber. Right. But it couldn't be this man, could it? It couldn't be the man that they'd connected with a fraud case, because that man was blind. Sorry, what? (laughs) What is this story? (laughs) It's like, this has all happened very fast. (laughs) Yes, it has. Okay. Okay, so somebody bombed the department store. Yep. And demanded Mm $50,000, which I don't know. Is that a lot in the 50s? Is that a little? Like, Uh, in terms of accounting for inflation in modern money, it would be over $500,000. Okay. I mean, it's a department store. Like, that's that'd be a hefty amount. All right, fair. Like, this is a big department store, but even so, that's a hefty chunk of change. Okay. And somehow. The police are confused by the fact that the man that they've tracked down is blind. Yes. I'm, sh- like... I'm sure the blind could bomb a department <laughs> store if they wanted to. Well... This seems ableist. <laughs> I don't know. I think you'd have fair grounds for being a bit confused. Sure, okay. I don't think it would be easy for someone to have, like, effectively held this department store to ransom with multiple bombs. Oh, and... is that what this person did? Yes. Okay, I was imagining like they chucked dynamite through the window and ran. (laughs) No, no, no. They set off a bomb. Okay. And then told told the department store they had another bigger one. Right. The first one was just a warning one. Okay. No one has warning bombs. That's insane. Well, it does kind of make sense when you hear the rest of the story. Okay, okay. let's go back to it. So the individual we are talking about today was a man by the name of William Clarence Pedicord. Nice. A great name. I like pedicles. I know, it's great. It's hmm. um it's slightly more common than I thought because really? well, I'm not going to lie, researching this was a bit of a pain because for some reason basically no one has covered this story. Okay. 
So I had to... Because they all read it, were like, well, a blind man bombed a department store. What more is there to say? No, but the story about his life is actually fascinating. Okay. But the thing is that eventually the way I had to research this episode was I had to go on things like Ancestry.com. I had to look up like original newspaper articles because no one has done like a modern analysis of this story. Okay, all right. And it's mad because it is a cool story. Anyway, so we are talking about William Clarence Pedicord, Mm -hmm. who was born September 18th, 1917 in New Mexico. Okay. But the family moved to Vancouver when he was just two and lived on the United States Army Reservation because his father worked there as a civilian engineer. Okay, cool. Clarence was not really a remarkable child. Mm. Um, He actually dropped out of high school during his sophomore year, which I think is like the second year or something. I think, I think it's like so, yeah, because it's like junior. You have freshmen. Fresh freshman, that's it. And then, then you sophomore, sophomore and then seniors. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we don't Maybe. have that. We don't have that in the UK. We just have numbers. Yeah, exactly. Um, so during his childhood, not really remarkable. Nothing particularly happened. Mm-hmm. It's age 19 where we have his first and probably most major life event. Okay. Which was that a fridge broke. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on with this story. Okay, so what happened was uh, Clarence was at home and noticed that the fridge wasn't working. So he decided to attempt some amateur refrigerator repair. Okay. He unscrewed part of the plate on the back and began to examine it. Now, he was growing frustrated at it, so he decided, you know, do what you do when something isn't working. You kick it? You give it a whack. Yeah, yeah. okay. And what happened was the back exploded. Okay. And blasted him in the stomach and sprayed him with sulfur dioxide gas. Ooh, okay. He ran outside to get away Mm -hmm. and called for his younger stepbrother and told him basically, get the family doctor. Right. Unfortunately, the family doctor was busy. Oh, no. But he sent along a different doctor, uh, a man by the name of Dr. Herbert Lisa. Okay. Now, Lisa came round to the house to find that a neighbour had brought out a wet cloth and that Clarence was holding it over his eyes. Right. Lisa heard the story and was really a dick about it. Like, he basically said, well, you shouldn't have been playing with the fridge then. This is your own fault. This is <laughs> this is karma, basically. How old is this child? He's 19. Oh, okay, great. And the doctor said that he would be absolutely fine. All he needed to do was have a nice walk in the fresh air and get some sunshine on him. I'm not kidding. Sure. Okay, yeah. I mean, the fridge is cold. <laughs> so if you go outside and get sunshine, then that will solve your solve your blindness that I'm assuming has come about as a, as a result of this. Well, not so far, but Clarence is definitely in distress because he's been sprayed with a refrigerant. Mm. And something is obviously not right, but the doctor doesn't seem to really listen. And after about 10 minutes, just leaves. Great. <laughs> and it's not long after that that Clarence starts like getting into severe pain and his vision starts going blurry. Yeah. And he and his brother and the neighbour organise an ambulance to come pick him up and take him to hospital. Was it that ambulance? It might well be. Wow, that's... <laughs> Here was me thinking I'd have to cut the sound of that, but no, I think I'll leave it in now. Perfect. It saves me doing a sound effect. 
Um, anyway, he's brought to hospital, but by the time he gets there, his vision has just gone. Yeah. Because effectively, the sulfur dioxide became sulfuric acid oh in his God. eye and dissolved part of his cornea. Oh, God. Yeah. Great. What so, a wonderful doctor. I know. The doctor is dreadful, and rightly so. Clarence then attempts to sue the doctor on a number of malpractice charges. Yeah. Interestingly, and this was another of my um, research sources, was actually the official notes on this court case. <laughs> right. And it's it's really, it's kind of tragic, actually. So uh, the doctor was sued not for causing the blindness or not for allowing him to become blind, but because of the pain he suffered while going blind. What? Yeah, it's some stuff to do with how... Technically, the doctor wasn't responsible because it was the refrigerant that did it. Uh, yeah. Like, in terms of malpractice, the doctor didn't cause the blind... I don't know. It's uh, very confusing. Okay. I I assume things have changed since then. Yes, it almost certainly has done. Like, <laughs> imagine if somebody had refused to heal my broken arm and, yeah. in fact, made it worse. And then gone, well... It wasn't me that broke your yeah. arm. It was the ice. It very Sue much is the that. ice. <laughs> Sue the refrigerant. <laughs> so obviously, a jury found in favour of Clarence, and the doctor was ordered to pay six and a half thousand dollars in damages. Okay. Uh, so that's about seventy thousand dollars now. Okay. So not necessarily going to make up for the fact that he won't really be able to hold down most jobs mm. of the time. Yeah. But enough for a few years, I guess. Yeah. The doctor's attorney wasn't happy with this and managed to haggle this down to $4,000. Oh, hun. And that didn't even matter because the doctor then went on to appeal mm. the results. Mm -hmm. And the court of appeal found in favour of the doctor. Basically, oh, God. Yeah, basically right. the court couldn't agree how the doctor should have acted in this situation. Right. Because since he didn't know which what refrigerant was used, he wouldn't know how to treat the patient. And the argument was if he had done something like wash his eyes out, he may well have made it worse if it was the wrong chemical okay. in the fridge. I mean, I do see that as a point. Mm. But at the same time... Surely nothing is worse than going, eh, it'll be fine. Take a walk, you're fine. It's your own fault. Like, yeah. did they not have some kind of universal eye wash? Or like, could he not have taken him to a hospital? It, like, well, wouldn't that be the thing to do? For some reason, they don't really talk very much about the possibility of taking him to hospital. But there is extensive discussion about whether or not he should have washed his eyes with water. <laughs> Sure, fine, okay. Well, ultimately, it didn't come to anything. The court found in favour of the doctor, so mm -hmm. Clarence didn't get anything. Great. Which really sucks. But to be honest, Clarence was determined not to let this be the end of him. Um, he received a seeing eye dog by the name of Duke. Duke. And together, uh, they accomplished a number of interesting things. Uh, they twice climbed to the top of Beacon Rock, an 850-foot monolith by the Columbia River. Wow, okay. Yeah. Apparently, it was done so well that he didn't even need to use any of the safety ropes that had been put in place for climbers. Oh, my God. Yeah, and okay. uh, this was reported by a local paper, and the headline was, Dog Leads Master Up Beacon Rock. 
<laughs> I feel like they're missing the key element of the story. I mean, newspaper reports were like that. Yeah. Though, weren't they? Like, have you seen that one that's like, um, duck eats yeast, quacks, explodes, or something? <laughs> think i have but i think that's just because that just sounds so banal like you yes. really need the word blind before master <laughs> oh newspaper reporting was a different thing back in those yeah. days yeah so uh despite doing these things obviously as you said finding work was really difficult mm. and clarence tried to apply for a number of different jobs and didn't really get anywhere as a bit of a as a bit of a long shot he actually applied to Sing Sing, the prison, okay. because they had an open role for the executioner. Oh my God. He wasn't given the job for obvious reasons, and yeah. he was actually interviewed about it by a journalist. <laughs> what, about not getting a job at Sing Sing because he's blind? About why he applied in the first place, and he actually said that he admitted he didn't know what he would have done had he actually gotten the job. Fair. <laughs> Now, the story got picked up by a charitable organisation who decided that they wanted to help Clarence. Mm. And they assisted him in starting up a business uh, distributing candy vending machines. Okay. As in vending machines for candy. Yeah. um, Which was like quite new technology at the time. Okay. I mean, interesting. Yeah. And it seemed to work. Like he had a job, he had a stable income, and he even managed to get married to his high school sweetheart, Lucille Dillaber, and had a child. Oh, Lucille is such a 50s name, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It was wonderful. But don't get used to them because unfortunately the marriage only lasted one year. Oh, no. But. Clarence, he's never going to be down. He wasn't single for long. (laughs) Right. Because his vending machine business was doing so well, he needed to expand. And to do that, he needed a driver. Yes. Because obviously, he can't do that himself. How is he delivering these vending machines? I think it was like a distribution. Like, he wasn't actually delivering them. I think he was organising stuff. Okay. All right. Uh, so, I've got so many questions about how how you would function as a blind person in the 1950s. And granted, yeah. I accept that you probably don't know the answers no, to these I don't. things. But I don't. I, I will also admit, I'm only about 80% sure I'm correct about the vending machines because I did find another article that suggested he just had a candy and newspaper stand. Okay. But it wouldn't have made sense as to why he needed to hire a driver for this. No. No. So I I don't know. As far as I can tell, this is what was going on. But like right. I said, this has been such a difficult one to research. All right. Anyway, the driver he hired uh, was a Miss Dorothy May McCourtney. And a woman. A woman. A woman driver. Not just a woman, but a, a rather lovely young woman. Ooh. And Clarence forms quite the attachment. And the two actually end up getting together and getting married. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Now, misfortune falls again when the US enters World War II. Mm. Because as a result, sugar is rationed. Oh no! So obviously, the candy vending machine! Exactly! So his business goes under mm-hmm. and he has to look for another job. Um, especially because his family is expanding. Um, I already mentioned he had one child by his first wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, his second wife, he has five children with her eventually. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, he is prolific in mm. terms of having children. But obviously, you know, they need to 
uh, he needs to support the family. Yeah. So they end up moving to Portland in Oregon and set up what is basically like a food stall or a food truck by a shipyard. Okay. And this was doing really well. Until tragedy struck. And I don't know the full details of this story because part of it is... Conf- I, I don't entirely understand the cause and effect okay. or the reasoning behind it. But basically what seems to have happened is that either accidentally or intentionally, one of the people who was working for Clarence at the time ended up poisoning his seeing eye dog, Duke. Um... What? Yeah. Okay. I think it's either he fed him something that he shouldn't have done. Right. Or he didn't like Clarence or something and decided, I'm going to get back at my boss by poisoning his dog. I don't know. Okay. I I hope it's the former. Yeah. I have got this image of this guy being like, oh, your, your owner used to distribute candy. Well, here's a candy bar. Oh no, yes. And then the dog Yeah you know, gets poisoned by chocolate because that's a Yeah. That's that, a thing that, with that, dogs. Yeah, that could make sense. But, you know, maybe he's just super evil and is like, I want yeah. to get back at my boss. Yeah. I will poison him and then the dog gets in the way and is like, No, my master and takes the poison meant for him. It's all very dramatic. And he never knows about it because he can't see. Oh, I know. <laughs> the dog gets a 21 gun salute at his funeral. Full state honours, medal on. Anyway, yeah. Um, so, regardless, Clarence is absolutely devastated by this and basically abandons the whole food truck idea. So, what he decides to do next was that he could work in one of the many factories that are helping with the U.S. war effort. Makes sense. I'm like munitions yeah is a big deal yeah and he could dye his hair blonde yeah which you know is apparently what everyone wanted to do when they worked in munitions well he can't because they won't accept him because he's blind however there was hope for clarence right because around this time more surgeries involving eye transplants were becoming available Okay. The only problem was that because it was quite early and because this is america the surgery cost a huge amount of money yeah So Clarence tried to raise money through, you know, the ordinary sorts of means, what you might expect, selling popcorn, selling pencils, committing fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, was this why he blew up the department store? No, it's not. Okay. That comes later. All right. What kind of what kind of fraud did he commit then? He and his wife went to California and they rented out a single home to multiple people at once got all their security deposits, and then just went home. So they basically just stole a load of security deposits from people. You know, I've heard of people doing this very thing on Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough, okay. Unfortunately for Clarence, they were tracked down and brought back to California where they faced (laughs) charges of fraud. Um, They didn't serve any jail time, though, because they pled guilty and they were basically fined. Mm. So Clarence decides that, you know, the popcorn didn't make much money, the Mm -hmm. pencils didn't make much money, the fraud actually lost them money. Yeah. So he's going to do what worked in the past, and he's going to do a publicity stunt. Okay. So his plan is to hitchhike the width of North America from Portland to New York. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Then he plans to sell his story and use the money to pay for his surgery. 
okay and it makes sense yeah it actually it works quite well like newspapers pick up on the story of the blind man like hiking across america yeah really quickly and by the time he gets to chicago a prominent radio station asks to interview him so he goes on the radio and he starts talking about what's going on his plight Mm -hmm. the possibility of surgery yeah and an anonymous charitable businessman decides to donate money to get Clarence a train ticket for the rest of his journey and to pay for the surgery. Okay. First of all, that's pretty cool. But yeah. second of all, what's the point in doing the rest of the journey if you've got the money already? Though? I think he was going to New York because that's where this doctor was who was performing oh. these surgeries. Because as I said, it was very early on. So very few doctors were doing it. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's he... kind of like a bit of a pilgrimage type exactly, thing as well. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So Clarence manages to get his corneal transplant. And he can see once again. Ooh. But only for a short time. Oh. Now, it's possible that the transplant just didn't take. Yeah. But the story that Clarence says is that he basically opened his eyes and he saw sunshine for the first time. Mm -hmm. And then he looked down and saw the blades of scissors coming towards his face. Now, what was happening was the doctor was cutting the stitching. Right. But Clarence just saw blades and jerked his head back, whacked his head behind him, and this caused, in, you know, eyes that have just undergone surgery, caused a bleeding build-up, and he went blind again. Oh, that's so tragic. Regardless of which version of the story is true, Clarence could not see afterwards see i'm just glad that what that this isn't what happened because Mm. this is what i imagine happening that clarence got his eye surgery everything was fine he went back to portland and when he got back home he found that the fridge wasn't working (laughs) (laughs) and he was like god damn it this goddamn fridge he whacked it (laughs) freon comes spurting out into his eyes and he's like please take me to a hospital and they're like no i'm walking off mate it'll be fine (laughs) well fortunately no and i'd also hope that at that stage clarence would just you know call in a technician (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so unfortunately while there's a brief moment where you can see he does it doesn't last and he doesn't have the money to undergo the surgery again. The doctor does basically say, you can come back in six months. Mm. But he can't because he hasn't got any cash. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. But once again, Clarence is not going to let this stop him. Okay. And he's going to set up a new business. And what better thing for a blind man to do than to get engaged with serious hazardous chemicals? I mean, he's already gone blind. What could go wrong? (laughs) He doesn't need safety goggles. Yeah. So he sets up a chemical laboratory, uh, which is basically designed to produce a battery restorative chemical. Okay. Now, it's quite possible that he was just making this up because he did actually have fraud charges brought against him for the products that his company was producing. Right. It is also possible that these were made up by other companies who were producing batteries who basically didn't want people to, you know, be able to keep batteries going for a longer period of time. Sure, yeah. Okay. Because then they won't buy more batteries. Yes. 
I'm more inclined to the former. Okay. <laughs> that this was fraudulent. <laughs> because for one thing, I don't know how many disposable batteries were like being sold at that sort the, of time. Like, what kind of battery are we talking about? Is it disposable batteries or is it like um, I mean, car I'm, battery I'm assuming things? they've got to be like hefty batteries. It must be, right? Yeah. I, I don't know, but... I, I don't know enough about batteries and no, the immediate... Well, I don't know about the history era. of batteries, no. <laughs> Is um, there like a battery timeline dot com <laughs> out there somewhere? Hopefully so. Um, but one thing he did do while he had this business was he actually taught himself to type. Okay. He uh, got a typewriter and he was said to be really proficient at typing. Mm. Like, he was good for a regular person let alone someone who can't actually see yeah. what they're doing well touch typing is a skill yeah exactly so you know he is improving himself mm. uh unfortunately because of the fraud charges <laughs> the chemical laboratory goes under understandable but the good thing about being able to touch type is that you can commit your fraud quicker and thus get on to the next floor. <laughs> this is true, but Clarence has something different in mind. Because obviously now he has another skill. Not the typing, but the knowledge of chemical engineering. Okay. So we'll skip ahead ten days to the date I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Friday, April 15th, 1955. It's so rare that our time skips are only ten days. I know, right? So Aaron Frank, the president of the large Meyer and Frank department store, mm-hmm. receives a letter which is marked important, important, important with exclamation marks after it. And he's like, eh, and leaves it in his intray. <laughs> well, it's taken a bit of time to get to him. Right. Um, it had to sort of circulate through the building because it was just left on one of the counters in the actual department store. Great. And this is a, like, when I say big... It was the length of a city block, and it was 12 stories tall. Like this was... I thought you were talking about the letter. <laughs> <laughs> the department store. Why would I be talking about the size of the letter? <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Frank, Mr. Frank, someone's dropped off a letter. Oh, bring it through, Sandra, bring it through. I can't, sir. I can't fit it through the door. <laughs> it's the size of a city block, sir. <laughs> Font size 14,000. Important. <laughs> I know it's important, but I can't get it open because <laughs> I can't reach the flap. I need a winch to open up the flap. No, okay, no. Okay, it's a really big department store. It's a department really big store. department store. Right. The department store is the lady. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the department store is the length of a city block and 12 stories tall. Jesus, that's tall. I know, it's a huge place. Mm. Um, So the letter had to take some time to circulate through. This explains how you can have more than one bomb. Well, yes. So uh, by the time Aaron Frank received the letter in his office, it was 2.28pm. Okay. The typed letter said that two bombs had been planted in the building and that by the time Aaron Frank had read the letter, one would go off. 
And the story is, and there's nothing contradicting this, is that literally Aaron Frank had just finished reading that paragraph when the first bomb went off. Jesus, that's cool. I know, it's so cool, right? Yeah. The bomb exploded in one of the men's toilets, uh, blowing part of the building apart and shattering the glass in the windows, scattering it over 100 metres across the street. Mm. Fortunately, only two people were injured. Uh, a cleaner who was heading to the toilet, and thank mm-hmm. God they didn't get there sooner. Yeah. And also a shopper who was in the nearby stairwell. And but the both da- of them tried to get medical help for their injuries. <laughs> and everyone was like, it's fine, just walk it off. You shouldn't have been in there in the first place. Is this a sort of like... Um, blind bombing pyramid scheme yes <laughs> look if everyone's blind then they have to give me a job <laughs> oh god <laughs> it's kind of like an evil batman villain who just focuses on blindness i mean to be fair he kind of is like we'll we'll okay we'll continue with this story <laughs> all right once the initial panic was over Aaron Frank decided, I better read the rest of that letter. Yes. <laughs> so he goes back and he reads it. And the letter says that a second bomb will go off the next day and would completely obliterate the store. Okay. This was a much bigger bomb. It would have to be. Yep. And it would go off unless the bomber was paid $50,000. Right. If he was paid this, he would send instructions as to where the bomb was and how to disarm it. Aaron Frank showed the police the letter and they made a full search of the building, but they couldn't find the bomb. Right. So, as I said, it's a huge building, Mm. not the letter. Yeah. The building is huge and it was searched as thoroughly as they could, but there's still every possibility that, you know, they just can't find this bomb. Yeah. And if it did go off and destroy the building, as the letter said, then that would be untold damage around the area. Like, the size of the bomb that would be required, like, so many people would yeah. die. Okay, so I'm just... I know this is Portland, but mm. I am kind of imagining this like um, the Tim Burton Batman yeah. film when they have all the Christmas presents everywhere yeah. that people don't investigate. <laughs> and the Christmas presents are huge. Yep. That would be perfect for putting a bomb in. But yeah. it's not Christmas, so... No, it's April. Mm. <laughs> there isn't really a holiday... Easter! Easter eggs. It would be a giant Easter egg. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, that's fine. That's been in here for weeks. Yeah. So, basically, the they can't find this bomb, but they're kind of like, we can't afford to... You know, just hope that this person is bluffing. Yeah, just keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, but they're also like, Saturday's really busy. Yeah. So if we have to close the store, that's going to be a real pain. Oh, we can't close the store on a Saturday. (laughs) So they basically decide that what they're going to do is pay the ransom. Fair enough. Now, the bomber left very specific instructions as to how the ransom should be paid. They said that a member of staff should be sent with a briefcase filled with the money Mm -hmm. and should wear a white carnation in his lapel to identify him. And that he should go to the Imperial Hotel between 6.30 and 7.30pm. So the letter said basically that it had to be an employee of the department store, like don't get the police involved. But the police were obviously like, we're not sending in some, we're going to send in an undercover police officer. Yeah. Also, how are you going to know if it's an employee of the store? Yeah. There are 
presumably hundreds of them. Yeah, absolutely. So they send undercover officer AJ Leans. They put a white carnation in his lapel and send him to the Imperial Hotel. The white carnation is getting me. It's yeah. So rom- like, I know, it, yes. It, it's kind of somewhere between romantic and mafiosi, and I can't yeah. quite put a finger on it. I think it's kind of cool. It's cool. So he goes to the Imperial Hotel and he finds a note waiting for him. And the note instructs him to go around the corner to the Bell Telephone Building. Mm-hmm. And that in there, there is a telephone booth number 15. He should go there and wait. So Lean's sort of goes outside, it's raining, it's getting dark, it's a bit cold. Mm-hmm. Undercover officers are watching him and they see a suspicious looking man sort of hanging around. Okay. Now Lean's goes over to the phone booth and he waits a while mm-hmm. and then the phone rings. So he picks it up and a high-pitched, half-whispered voice asks him if he was the man with the bag. He says he was and the voice told him, to go back to the Imperial Hotel. <laughs> no! Yeah, because there he would find a note and a key in a particular telephone booth. So right. Leans goes to follow the instructions, but this suspicious man is following after him. Okay. So the undercover officers are like, that must be someone yeah. connected. We'll go. So they start, like, a few of them start approaching the position and the man bolts it. Yeah. Turns out the man was just a pickpocket. Had <laughs> absolutely nothing to do with this case, but just happened to oh, see this awkward. guy. I know. I mean, understandable because you see this kind of dapper looking yeah. guy. I assume he's got a carnation in his He's got a hole. carnation. He's got a big old briefcase. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that looks like the kind of man you might want to pickpocket. And he seems very distracted. Yeah. By the phones. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's so awkward. I know, right? Oh, dear. But I mean, fortunate for him that he didn't, you know, manage to blow the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, blow the whole thing like a bomb sorry Uh, (laughs) so Leans goes back to the Imperial Hotel and he goes to the particular telephone booth and he does indeed find a note and a key Mm -hmm. and the note tells him to go to the Union Station (laughs) and that the key will open a, a particular locker right so I know what you're thinking you know he goes opens a locker puts the bag in no, then, I'm expecting him to find another note that tells him to go somewhere else. Well, I, I, I don't know why you would think that. That just seems... Because this is stupid. It just seems remarkable to me. Well, Leans goes over to the Union Station. He yeah. finds the locker. Yeah. He unlocks it. Yeah. And there's a note inside. Oh my God, really? It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't tell him to go somewhere else. Yes. Is Leans really tired now? <laughs> well, it's okay if Leans is tired because the note tells him to hire a taxi that does not have a two-way radio. It says that... <laughs> How would you know? I don't know. Okay. It doesn't go into that. Right. Presumably, like, get an old taxi. I guess. Like, or just, like, not a modern one or something. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, tells him to get a taxi without a two-way radio... And get it to drive to Eugene, Oregon, which is a fair distance. It's a good name for a town, isn't it? Eugene. It's also made worse by the fact that the note specifically instructs them that the taxi cannot drive faster than 25 miles per hour. 
Otherwise, it's going to explode because there's a bomb underneath it, like in speed. I mean, that was my first thought, but no. The reason for this is ridiculous, and we'll get to it later. Is it because he's still planting whatever new note in Eugene, (laughs) Oregon, and he doesn't want them to get there too fast? Oh, it's a scavenger hunt. (laughs) Oh, my God. So... Um, you were you were out on a lad's evening I was, the other yeah. day. I watched Amelie. Oh, nice. And the second half of the film is basically this, but without the threat of explosion. Amazing. Well, he manages to get the taxi mm-hmm. and uh he's going to drive to Eugene, Oregon Great. at twenty-five miles an hour. Uh oh. which is it's actually it's quite dangerous because they have to go on like some busy main roads oh, no. and obviously they're going really slowly yeah but the note says that they have to do this and at some point on the journey a car will come up behind them flash its headlights three times okay. and that is the instruction to drop the briefcase full of money out of the cab without stopping or getting out right and that would be the final handoff so finally we're done oh with the God. notes good okay but also what if it's just somebody trying to encourage them to go faster? <laughs> I know. I also thought about that. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't really a thing at the time, or maybe it's like three sustained flashes. Because like mean, normally when people do that sort of thing, if they're being dicks about it, they like flash a load of times. I guess maybe. But I don't know. I think it, I just think it's a risk. It is a risk. I have been on highways in the US. Yeah, and. If they're really long interstate highway like types, then they tend not to have loads of lanes to them because there's not actually that much traffic on them. Well, this is still in Oregon. I guess. It's not going out of state. I guess. But anyway, so Leans gets the taxi. He's on Mm -hmm. the journey. Mm -hmm. They're going really slowly. (laughs) And they get to Eugene, Oregon. Oh, no. And <laughs> what do no, you do now? no one has come up behind them and flashed three times. Okay. So they're kind of like, we don't know what to do. We did everything we were asked. Yeah. We didn't, like, nothing happened. The taxi driver's there being like, what the hell am I supposed to <laughs> <laughs> Taxi driver's there being like, I really hope I get paid for this because this has been an arse ache. I mean, imagine if they had sent just some, yeah. like, person from like Stuck behind the, the tail yeah like yeah how are they going to deal with that I have and no also idea. like what if you just assumed that they'd just fun- decided to take an afternoon off at this Don't point know. because you only expected them to go to the imperial hotel yeah also i was fully expecting them to get to eugene oregon find a note being like go back to the imperial hotel <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fantastic but the police are really worried because the thing is, they've been following the taxi and unmarked police cars. Right. So, really slowly at 25 miles an hour? Well, I don't know how they did it. Maybe they did it in sort of shifts, sort of like I, doing a sort of cycle. I guess you'd concept. have to, yeah. wouldn't you? But um, obviously they're worried that, you know, the bomber's seen the police cars mm. is like, I said no police and is going to set off the bomb. Right. Saturday comes. Yep. And Saturday goes. Yep. Like, the department store was closed, but no bomb goes off. Oh, no. And they closed the shop? I know, yeah. Oh, that's obsessing. So the police obviously investigate, Mm -hmm. and they end up arresting about six people. Okay. But none of the charges stick. Like, they make arrests, but no one's actually fully charged with the crime. Mm. Um, And it's only by chance that another police officer 
manages to match the letter that was sent because it was typed he matches it to the same type of letter that was sent from this chemical laboratory in the fraud case oh awesome because at the time and i think some like some printers still do it now typewriters have like distinct watermarks effectively yeah that denote that this particular typewriter has written this particular message yeah and also you can usually tell because they have like little weird things about yeah. them because they're just not even yeah exactly so basically this completely matched up it's like these two notes were written on the same typewriter and that's the reason why people cut letters out of yeah. newspapers <laughs> so obviously they're like oh fantastic we know where the typewriter is we know the man who's behind this yeah and of course they're like it's this man clarence pedicord yeah who's blind yeah he can't have done all this and they're like that probably would explain not. why he didn't bother driving the car then. <laughs> well, they say, like, probably not, but let's go interview him. So they go round to Clarence's house. Mm -hmm. Clarence is there waiting for them. Oh. And he's basically like, I knew you'd find me. It's a fair cop. <laughs> All right. Like, there is another story that the police kind of roughed him up mm. and possibly forced him to write a confession. Like, this is what he claims later on. Okay. Um, but his, I believe his uh, wife says that they turned, like, they discussed this. They knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Clarence was going to, you know, just give himself up. Right. Okay. So the police uh, arrest him and they also arrest his accomplice. <gasps> because, of course, he had to have one. Which was his sister-in-law, Joyce Keller. Of course. Yes. Who... To be honest, I know that you look a bit sort of nonplussed because she hasn't appeared in this story <laughs> up until this point. Yeah. She doesn't appear in any part of his story until this point. Right. I don't know when they met. I don't know how close they were. I mean, you've got to be close to someone if you're going to help them with the terrorist act. Is like this his sister-in-law as in his wife's sister? Yes. Or his sister... Okay, cool. I believe so. I'm not even certain. <laughs> oh my God. This is, how, <laughs> this is how difficult this has been to research. Okay. So Joyce Keller was implicated as his, uh, as basically being his eyes, as he puts it. Right. Uh, a shop assistant who worked at the department store remarked that she had seen a woman matching Joyce's description with a man enter the department store mm -hmm. and head towards the toilet. Okay. And also the reason that the taxi was told to drive so slowly was that apparently Joyce Keller was not a very good driver. <laughs> And Clarence was worried that if she had to follow a car at high speed, she might crash. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> okay, but why Why didn't he just... Okay, why didn't he just get the person to leave the money in... In, in the vault? Or so, in a way, that is actually... It is actually quite sensible what he does, because the more like points they have to go to the more likely that you can like lose any trail because obviously the police are going to be watching right but the more places you have to send someone the more likely it is that you know there'll be a point when they're not being watched it does actually like it, okay, okay it is actually a good tactic that people do in those sorts of situations they just didn't actually bother following the car well it seems like what happened was at the last minute either Joyce, Clarence, or both of them kind of lost their nerve. Okay. And they couldn't bring themselves to do the last bit of it. 
They the, managed to blow up a men's toilet. Well, the thing was that they had planned it so that it wouldn't hurt people. Like, the, right. the, the two people who got injured, that was unfortunate. Mm. Like, that wasn't part of the plan. The point was that they would set off the bomb. It would scare them. They yeah. would pay the money. And there wasn't a second bomb. Yeah, no, obviously. Yeah. So Clarence tells them this and they're like, for God's sake, (laughs) this is ridiculous. Of course we are arresting both of you. Yes. It is an open and shut case, or at least it is for Clarence. For Joyce, it's a little bit different because Clarence initially is going to testify against her in her trial. Mm -hmm. But at the last minute, he changes his mind and basically says, no, I'm not going to say anything. Oh. Now he is the key witness in Joyce's trial. The only other person being this woman who identified her at the department store. Right. But the uh, the defense attorney basically manages to discredit her by set, by pointing out that she can't remember any other face of someone at the of like a customer that day. Right. She can only so it's remember like, why Joyce. Would you remember, exactly. Like it's clearly that thing where you go, oh yes, yeah. I remember that person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Joyce actually gets off scot free. Amazing. And then she vanishes into the ether from whence she came because she never existed before or after this caper. I mean, there's some possibility that she frequented a lot of dive bars after this, but yeah, she kind of drops out of the story. Okay. As quickly as she drops in, she drops out. <laughs> Yay! It's like, hi, Joyce, bye, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> so initially, the supposition is that Clarence is going to get, like, the sentence is going to be lenient because, you know... He didn't accept, he didn't get the money. He mm-hmm. didn't follow through on his threat. Only a couple of people hurt and they were fine. Yeah. And, you know, he's blind. Yeah. The judge is like, no, no. Well, this is the third time he's tried something along yeah. these lines. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, in the reports of the judge's sentencing, he basically says that, I'm paraphrasing here, but Clarence is useless to society. I know it's really hard. I mean, he has tried to be useful. I know. I know it's really not his fault. No, but the judge does sentence Clarence for twenty years in prison. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, this happens in 1956. Mm -hmm. Uh, By 1963, Clarence tries to appeal his case on the grounds that the police had bullied a confession out of him. Right. But the court of appeal refuses to hear it. Mm. They're basically like, "No, there's not any evidence of this." You done the crime, get back in prison. Yeah. Uh, fortunately for Clarence, uh, he's only in there for another three years. Okay. Uh, by 1966, having served half his sentence, his parole is granted. And then unfortunately, we kind of lose him. Like, there's some possibility that he might have uh, skipped out on his parole. Mm. But really, the next we hear of him is at age 60 in 1978 when he died of a heart attack in New York. Oh, God. Yeah. But we don't know really what happened in those intervening years. That's a long way to go to die of a heart attack. I mean, yes, absolutely. There is some rumours from uh, his children that he had written an autobiography while he was in prison. Okay. But it seems that no one ever wanted to publish it. And I am so annoyed about this. <laughs> yeah. Because this is such an interesting case. And it's just, there's just so much that we don't know, or it's hearsay, or like, I found a few scraps of things that are like, that's interesting, but I need to know more. Mm. We've got this mysterious Joyce who turns up for yeah. five seconds, drives a car badly, and leaves. <laughs> 
Poor Joyce. That's, <laughs> all, that's all we know her for. Apparently she has a distinctive face and she drives badly. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's such a shame and I wish there was more information out there because I mean, this could be a film. I it know is. we say, I know we say that a lot about some things. That's because we talk about interesting stuff. Exactly, yeah. And this whole like this man's plight, like I can sympathize with oh, him. Oh yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that he never actually tried to hurt anybody. Mm. He is a sympathetic Batman villain. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. It's really quite quite cool. And that's why there should be more information. But God damn it, there isn't. Riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> what happens when you spray sulfuric acid in your eyes? <laughs> Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4, and you can suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby has used in the pod. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and don't try and fix your fridge. Bye!